0: or wherever you listen.
1: Even as sick as I was, there was still always this fear that maybe I was, it was psychosomatic. And the more diagnoses I got and the more problems I had, the more hmm. I worried, could this be in my head at times, right? Wow. Because there's no diagnosis. You really crave an answer. You're listening
2: to How To the show that tackles life's toughest problems with the smartest people we can find. I'm Amanda Ripley. Today, we've got a mystery. You only get a few clues and the stakes couldn't be higher. You're in pain and you need answers. Something like 30 million Americans are suffering from mysterious, unexplained illnesses, forced to do their own detective work day in and day out, online and in doctor's offices. Our listener this week is currently trapped in this exact maze. And it's maddening.
3: My name is Mike. I am a graduate student in Minnesota. And I've been struggling with, um, you know, mysterious sort of chronic illness for the past four, maybe five years at this point.
2: Back around 2017, Mike started getting these headaches that were unlike anything he'd
3: ever experienced. You know, I'd teach for two weeks and then I'd get, you know, some really bad headaches and I'd feel like I'd the flu and this sort of process would repeat over and over and over again. And I really didn't know what was going on.
2: So Mike went to a doctor and then another And another after that, looking for answers. They all started with some obvious theories.
3: You know, I think early on, you know, I'm a grad student suffering with headaches and all sorts of, you know, aches and pains. And so I think everyone's first instinct is, you know, it must be something sort of psychosomatic, like Mm -hmm. maybe you're depressed, maybe you have anxiety. And so, you know, the initial response sort of by doctors was to, you know, send me to a therapist.
2: So Mike took antidepressants for a while, but that only made his symptoms worse. So then doctors moved on to other theories. Maybe there's mold in his apartment. Maybe he had mono. Or maybe it's a tick-borne illness, especially since Mike likes to go camping. Then something happened in the summer of 2018.
3: I'd been a runner all of my life. I went on a a short, you know, maybe two-mile run and came back and felt like, I had been hit by a bus, you Mm. know. Imagine the worst hangover you'd ever had with, you know, like the flu, you know, all these symptoms sort of coming on very quickly. And, you know, after that, I've been stuck struggling with a chronic illness sort of ever since.
2: Wow, I'm sorry. It seems like a hell of a few years that you have been through.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's been a journey, yeah.
2: Today on the show, we're bringing in someone who has been on her own journey, through the maze and back again. Megan O'Rourke is a journalist and poet and the author of the new book, The Invisible Kingdom,
1: Reimagining Chronic Illness. Oh, Mike, I'm first of all, so sorry about everything you've gone through. It's a very, very familiar story to me. I have heard versions of your story from now thousands of people, some of whom I've interviewed directly, and it's eerily like my own story.
2: We've probably all heard more stories like this lately because of something we've all come to know as long COVID. About 40% of people who catch COVID seem to have symptoms that stick around a month or longer, and doctors are still trying to figure it out. In Megan's case, she finally found some answers to her own medical mystery, but it didn't happen overnight and not without a lot of effort. So whether you're piecing together clues yourself or trying to support someone who is, We will share tips on how to navigate the mysteries of modern medicine, or at least make life in the maze a little more tolerable. We'll be right back.
0: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. In each episode, Kitty talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast, or find it wherever you listen.
2: Megan's story really begins when she was just 21. She'd recently graduated from college and moved into a tiny basement apartment in the East Village. She just started working at her dream job at the New Yorker magazine when one day
1: everything changed. It was a beautiful fall day and I'm walking to the subway and all of a sudden it feels like a swarm of tiny bees has surrounded me and begun stinging my legs and arms. I'm just experiencing these incredibly violent Um, it's almost like itching, but it's shocks, tiny, tiny shocks all over my body. And they get more and more severe that I have to stop and rub my arms Mm -hmm. and legs so that my legs don't actually spasm and twitch. They started sort of spasming and twitching, and I thought I was going to fall down.
2: This happened every morning for the next three months. Then she'd get a reprieve before it started back up again. It was really disconcerting to have her body just turn on her this way. Because like Mike, Megan had been really physically active.
1: She was a gymnast growing up, used to flying through the air. And now... I could barely walk up and down stairs. Um, I have a very similar story of like pushing through it one day, going running. I was a big runner and athlete. And then pretty much collapsing afterward. This is many years later. And then that leads to me being pretty much bedridden for a few months. That's the point where I started to get answers. Um, My sickness was caused by a multitude of factors, um, which is part of how I came to realize that one problem we have with these chronic illnesses is that often we're looking for the answer, Mm -hmm. right? But in fact, there can be these series of causes and triggers that contribute to a case like Mike's where you're kind of going downhill and then maybe there's a sudden decline. Here's our first insight. We as humans
2: often get caught up searching for the one nicely packaged one size fits all explanation. And that goes for patients and doctors when in fact, the answer is a lot more complicated. I'm curious, how did you try treating those strange electric shock symptoms early on?
1: Yeah, well, like Mike, I went to some specialists and I had a really nice dermatologist and he was like, ah, dry skin. I was like, I don't know, man. And then I saw another dermatologist and he said, I think something immune is going on. And he tested me for a bunch of autoimmune stuff. And I turned out to have what's called a positive ANA, which can be a marker of lupus. But I didn't have other positive tests, so they never even told me at the time. But in my case and in Mike's case, I would say those strange little slightly off markers are really significant. So I, I went and searched for years and then basically like Mike, right? You turned to the internet. <laughs> now that might sound like a really bad idea. We all know the
2: internet can make you crazy, but when all else fails and you really need answers or at least some kind of validation, Sometimes these online patient communities can be really valuable.
1: I arrived at a diagnosis like you peel an Mm. onion. (laughs) You know, there was the first level, which, Mike, I'm just so connecting to your story, where they were like maybe viruses. So I went and got all this viral testing. And indeed, I had active mono. I had active cytomegalovirus, I had active parvovirus. Very unusual to have all these viruses active at the same time. So the question was why? No one knew, right? So first we could say, okay, she's run down by viruses. Then I got a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease. I had um, uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which could explain some of my fatigue but I got treated for it and I still was sick, right? Which then really frustrated my doctor because she was like, I've given you this diagnosis more or less, right? And you're still saying you're you're not well, maybe you just need to adjust to the reality that you're not gonna be as healthy as you used to be. But I could tell that I was still really not functioning and I had severe cognitive problems. I was a writer and teacher and it was becoming increasingly hard to teach. I'd be really exhausted afterwards. It was hard to find words. Um, yeah. And so then eventually, basically I wrote an article about autoimmune disease and a lot of people wrote in to say, this is what you have. And some of those answers were really wild, <laughs> right? But a lot of people wrote in to say, maybe you have a tick-borne illness. And like Mike, I'd grown up camping. I'd pulled many ticks off my body, but I'd never had a bullseye rash. In any case, I got a diagnosis eventually of two tick-borne illnesses. And, um, but even that wasn't the end. So you're like in this maze,
2: and you get you get to one answer, and then you're sent off in another direction, right? And it's like ping-ponging from one diagnosis to the next.
1: Um. It is. And I think until I researched my book, I kept worrying that this was all almost fake.
3: You know, I can remember one of the first doctors that I went to You know, she ran so many tests on me, and I think she was really trying her best to figure out what was wrong. You know, I could sort of sense that she was getting frustrated. It's hard not to internalize that frustration, even when you can sense that it's not directed at you. Mm, That's so well put. I
1: completely connect to that, Mike, because I had a lot of great doctors who really did want to help me, but... You also feel like, right, they have a busy day and a busy schedule, and at the end of the day, their job isn't being your medical detective, even though you want it, to, you need it to be their job, right? In the end, part of what helped me was getting out of the siloed specialist-driven system. I mean, I remember thinking of my body as a car, inheriting that idea that conventional medicine has of you've got these specific parts and you kind of check them all out and you see if the carburetor's working. And at some point in my illness, I came to realize that there had to be an interconnection between these seemingly disparate symptoms. Um, And I ended up going to see what are called integrative or functional doctors, which are doctors with MDs, but they also try to think about what might be the root cause of a host of seemingly disconnected problems. And they really focus on finding ways to support your body when it's struggling with things like viruses. And I wonder if you've seen any or if you've been really in the conventional medical system going more from specialist to specialist.
3: I would say that I have definitely been sort of stuck sort of in the conventional (laughs) medical world right now. And so I think that's very helpful advice to maybe seek out someone who doesn't maybe fall into these regimented specialties.
2: So here's another good insight. Sometimes the best thing you can do is break out of our current cookie cutter system. But in America's dysfunctional healthcare industry,
1: that can come at a tremendous cost. A lot of the doctors who helped me didn't take insurance. And I always like to be really upfront about that and talk about the fact that I had to go into debt to get treated for my illness, right? I had to take my credit card and just hand it over, (laughs) knowing I was not gonna be able to pay off doctors because a lot of integrative doctors don't take insurance.
2: That's because integrative medicine, when done right, can require more time than insurance companies really want doctors to spend with patients. All that said, some integrative doctors will work with you on pricing, Megan says, which could help.
1: The other thing, though, is that there are some really wonderful researcher clinicians out there who've made it their life's work to try to understand patients like you. Because what you're talking about with the fatigue and the lightheadedness often is a feature of what's called dysautonomia, dysregulation of that autonomic nervous system that controls things like blood pressure and heart rate and um, making sure there's enough blood in our brains. And a lot of people who, I don't know, have these vague system roaming symptoms do turn out to have some form of dysautonomia.
3: I really love this phrase, system roaming symptoms, because I think it really sort of captures, Mm. you know, how I feel, you know, that things are sort of bouncing around. I mean, I am fortunate, uh, you know, in my position as a graduate student, that I have I have extremely good health insurance. Uh, you know, but you know, seeking sort of a, an integrated doctor or some of these, you know, maybe specialist clinics, as Megan has suggested, has, has sometimes felt maybe out of range for me. You know, I was looking into, you know, maybe getting on a waiting list for one of these specialist clinics. But, you know, they're in California or on the East Coast and, and they might not take insurance. And so then you're paying, you know, thousands of dollars to travel there and stay there. And, and you sort of are wondering, you know, is the expense going to be worth it?
2: That's the million dollar question. But how do you put a price on your health? When we come back, we'll hear about a major twist in Mike's medical journey that made him rethink everything about how he was being treated. Don't go anywhere.
4: This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design.
2: you rely on how to to help you solve your own personal mysteries the best way to support this show is by joining slate plus slate's membership program signing up for slate plus helps us help all the people you hear on our podcast every week members will never hear another ad and you also get free and total access to slate's website so join us if you can to sign up now go to slate.com slash how to plus again that's slate.com slash how to plus We're back with Megan O'Rourke, author of The Invisible Kingdom, and our listener, Mike. In early 2020, in the midst of his medical mystery, Mike got an answer of a sort. It wasn't the answer because it didn't explain everything, but he was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And while his other symptoms continued, even after treatment, he noticed a profound change in how other people responded to him.
3: It's night and day. Mm. You know, you just uh, there are so many people who are so supportive of you when you get one of these diagnoses, you, you know, whether they be doctors or friends and family, you know, it's it's really easy to say, you know, I'm not going to be able to get this project that I said I would get done, um, you know, because I'm going to the hospital to get surgery <laughs> and I need some time to recover. You know, that's something that I think people really understand. Mm. But you know at least in my experience the experience of having cancer has been nowhere near as debilitating as sort of this chronic illness hmm. and you know it's been much harder to explain sort of you know I, I can't hang out with you today you know i'm i'm having really bad headaches you know that's mm-hmm. and and for this mm-hmm. to go on for now at this point years you know it, it's very sort of hard to explain disappears, you start to lose friendships. People don't really understand what you're going through, even, you know, if they try to. Um, you know, I think it's just something, you know, I think before getting sick, I would have had a very hard time understanding, you know, what someone in my position was going through. Whereas, you know, something like cancer, you know, I think everyone sort of understands the stakes there.
2: Wow, that is wild. So you, you found it easier to get support and understanding... With cancer.
3: Yes. Obviously, that's not a universal experience. Right, right, right. But in my own experience, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah.
2: Humans struggle with uncertainty. It is deeply unsettling to us. We want to put things in boxes. But the thing is, there are so many more people than we think dealing with an unexplained illness. And they also need to feel understood. How would you advise people who are, you know, friends or loved ones... How can they be helpful in this kind of situation or at least do less harm?
1: Yeah, well, Mike, everything Mike just said is so important. I think to really hear what he just said, which was that the symptoms of this invisible, poorly understood illness were more debilitating and challenging to live with sort of from a psychological and physical perspective than his cancer diagnosis. And to me, that just speaks to how difficult it is to live with an illness that no one understands or can see or can name, right? It's incredibly lonely. It is incredibly debilitating to try to make yourself visible. One of my friends met me for coffee one day and I was having a really bad day. And despairing, too, about would I ever get answers. I was having really bad symptoms. And she just looked at me and she said, I can see that you're suffering, Megan. Let's go sit down. Hmm. And, you know, it was just this amazing gift because no one ever said that they could see anything.
2: Here's our next insight, maybe the most important one. Megan's friend didn't swoop in to try and fix her problem or talk her out of it. Instead, she just listened, which is something we can all do. I am curious. I'm a little bit like nervous to say this. So you, you guys can just tell me that I'm an ignorant fool. That's fine. That's always possible. But like <laughs> there are there are people who are hypochondriacs, right? Like that, I, is that a real thing? And if so, how do we sort out the difference? Or maybe it doesn't matter. It's a great question.
1: Look, I'll tell you recently, um, I had some little funny pain and I just fixated on it. And I, my kids are young. And one of my fears is that I'll, you know, die and they Mm. won't remember me. Right. And it just, there was COVID going on and I just kind of fixated on it a little bit. And I went to the doctor to say, I think this is probably fine, but I am really fixated on it. And nothing was wrong. It was fine. But it was clear to me in the moment that I was building a narrative around the pain in addition to experiencing the pain. Does that make sense? Hmm. And that the pain could be ordinary and that the next step was to find out more. I think what people misunderstand about these illnesses is that we're not building a narrative around something that we have a clear explanation for. We're suffering from something that has no explanation and the suffering is really profound. And, so part of what medicine has to do, and part of, unfortunately, Mike's job, right, <laughs> is to figure out how to communicate in a way that makes that suffering legible. But I, I think we have a little bit too much of, we, we sort of think there are more hypochondriacs mm. than there really are, it's right. my suspicion. I mean, Mike, what what's your experience of that?
3: I mean... <laughs> At the beginning, I talked about, you know, the first sort of initial diagnosis from my doctors was maybe this is psychosomatic, you know, maybe this is depression or anxiety. And, and and obviously those are very real conditions, but I don't think it helps anyone if we're sort of misdiagnosing, you know, if we're grouping people that are really suffering from depression alongside people who are suffering from these really misunderstood illnesses. You know, it, it really benefits none of us yeah. to sort of group those things together. So
1: again, this goes back to the measurement problem in medicine. Medicine wants to measure, it wants evidence. But what if you live at the edge of medical knowledge and there's not enough evidence, right? What happens is you're told, oh, maybe this is depression or anxiety. And that becomes this reflexive label for medicine to think about. Someone like Mike, whose condition it doesn't yet have a name for, um, though hopefully it will soon. <laughs> um, right. And that uncertainty really affects patients. Hmm.
3: Yeah, I think that was really nicely put.
1: I mean, actually, if you step
2: back from it, it's quite amazing. Like both of you have managed to live a pretty full life while experiencing these unpredictable, you know, vexing, painful symptoms if you could give yourself
1: advice from the beginning, if you could go back in time, what would you tell yourself? The number one thing I wish I could tell myself, and I think this is something Mike, too, I would tell you as someone relatively early still, is to really trust my own instincts and to really insist on the reality of what I was experiencing. I spent too long dismissing myself and discounting myself in the face of non-answers. And it was terrifying. You know, I, I I have to say it was absolutely terrifying. I thought at any moment, I might just take that next dip downhill that would leave me unable to earn money and unable to pay my rent. And I couldn't have kids when I was really sick. I tried and then I realized basically I would probably die. Um, and I couldn't get pregnant because my body, thankfully, was like
2: this is <laughs> no, a thank you. Bad
1: idea. So yeah, it was really clear, you know. And then as soon as I got better and was treated for Lyme disease, I mean, better meaning, you know, seventy percent. I still live with these conditions, but um, I will tell you that within five days of taking doxycycline for Lyme disease, I went from being bedridden to being able to take a short run in my neighborhood in Brooklyn and just feeling endorphins for the <laughs> first time in years. But I also, after the antibiotics, because I learned so much about how our immune system works and about autoimmune disease, and I had an autoimmune disease, I decided to go get what's called a fecal microbiota transplant, which is basically (laughs) like putting other people's poop in you. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. And yes, that's what it is. (laughs) That's what it is. It's what it is. It's cleaned up in various ways and screened for (laughs) All very sanitary. But it was really scary to do. I wondered if I was doing something really wild and unnecessary. And then again, two weeks later, felt amazing and got pregnant with my first son.
2: And what is that like? Like when you start to feel better, are you, is it very fragile? And you're like every moment checking, oh, am I, is it going away?
1: it's fragile and I actually just got a wave of this feeling um I experienced profound grief when I started to get better because I think and Mike can speak to this I think when you're really sick you actually can't quite grieve because you're searching for that answer that understanding that framework um and so I spent so much of my energy insisting on the reality of my illness that I couldn't mourn for what I had lost. And so it wasn't until I got some names and frameworks for what was wrong with me and the help that got me to a kind of plateau where I could, you know, do things that brought me joy and were central to my sense of self. And in that moment, I suddenly just felt what this illness and the incuriosity of medicine had taken away Mm -hmm. from me which was 10 years of my life. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I can actually hear it in your voice. Like when you, like there's a, like, yeah, yeah. it's still
1: there, you know, it it comes and goes, but yeah, just when you said that, I was like, oh yeah.
3: You're going to experience just so much grief. Um, You know, I think being a young person, you know, right before I got sick, you know, I was, you know, having a lot of success, you know, socially, professionally, and there's, you know, constantly sort of dogged by these questions of, you know, what could have been, you know, if I hadn't gotten sick, you know, I would advise myself to really be gentle and to acknowledge that you are now sort of on, you know, a different path than those, uh, you know, your friends or your peers, the people around you. Mm -hmm.
2: So you have to kind of let go of the life you thought you would lead
3: letting yourself experiencing these emotions can sort of trigger symptoms um, because it sort of puts your body through so much stress.
1: It's diabolical. Yeah, it is. I remember my husband said to me, the disease itself is stressful. Right. And yet stress exacerbates the disease. So yes, Mike, I totally relate to what you're Mm. saying.
3: It it takes a lot of effort um, to sort of gain this knowledge, you know, sort of to try to understand what's going on for things that are unfamiliar. And the mere act of trying to get better can make you worse.
2: Here's our last insight. You got to trust your instincts if you know something is wrong, but you got to also choose your moments. Make sure you have a first aid kit of things that are relaxing and restorative for days when being your own doctor is just too much.
1: Writing was really, is really central to me. I mean, even just kind of keeping a journal. Um, And when I was really sick, I couldn't write because I cognitively was so, I was so cognitively impaired, but I told myself I could write one line of poetry every day. And I did. Um, The other thing that's really, really helpful is meditation. And it can be five minutes a day. It doesn't solve any problems, but It helped me live with the mounting anxiety I was feeling that no one could see what was wrong and that I had no control over what was wrong. And it just, again, gave me a kind of framework for observing what was happening. And I think made me a better narrator of what was Mm -hmm. happening in the end.
3: You know, when you're having a day when you're having a lot of symptoms, you know, sometimes the only thing you can do is sort of lay there and focus on your breathing or Mm -hmm. something, you know, to not sort of overwhelm what's going on. And I would say this is something that I'm still sort of struggling with, um, is trying to figure out ways that don't use a lot of energy um, that are still sort of life-giving.
1: The other thing that's been really helpful, if I can do it, is getting into a forest. (laughs) Yeah. Forest bathing, as it's called, right? It's very peaceful and quiet, and you feel your blood pressure go down and all that. That's a good one.
2: Yeah. Yeah, So forest bathing, I believe, is a a term that emerged um, in Japan in the 80s, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. There is a lot of research on the physiological benefits of being by trees and in nature. Um, so it's not as woo-woo <laughs> as it sounds. Yeah. I should point out, if you're going to go forest bathing, um, watch out for ticks. <laughs> <because> <laughs> mm, true.
1: Very true. Very true. <laughs> Come full circle. Long socks.
2: Long socks. Long sleeves. Long yes. sleeve. Thank you to Mike for sharing his medical mystery with us and to Megan for all of her compassion and advice. Make sure to look for her book, The Invisible Kingdom. Do you have something you'd like us to help you puzzle out? Send us a clue or the whole question at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And we'd love to have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, Please give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson produces the show. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Special thanks to Amber Smith. Charles Duhigg created this show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.